poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into The Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy, with you until the end of the hour. Today on the show, we will be featuring a book called Whalers and Warriors by Northern Rivers author and pyrographic artist Neil Plym. Stories that need to be told. Histories that mustn't be forgotten for how can we move forward authentically without acknowledging the past. Not brushing over it in a time where frenzied popular culture distort history, context, real human dilemmas, ugliness, beauty... Whalers and Warriors comprises stories about the whaler warhorses of the Australian Light Horsemen, the stories of the fate of Indigenous volunteers confronted with abandonment at the end of the Boer War and World War I. But first, let's settle in with a track from the Furies called Gallipoli. It stands clear in my mind We stood down at Dunleary To wave you goodbye Your ma was quietly weeping There was a tear in my eye As they sent you to Gallipoli to die You looked so young as you stood there At lint in your eye And you sang Rebel songs as the streamers flew high. Your ma turned away, and I heard a sigh. God, you're sailing to Gallipoli to die. You were all that we had, your mommy and me. When you marched head erect, you were proud as could be. Killed your poor man It slowly killed me When you were blown The kingdom come On the shores of Gallipoli We only got the one letter And we knew right away It says deepest regrets Your son was bold and he was brave You were only 18 
18, yet your mommy and I let you go to Gallipoli to die. You were all that we had, your mommy and me, when you marched head erect, you were proud as could be, and it killed your poor man, it slowly killed me. When you were blown to kingdom come on the shores of Gallipoli, you fought for the wrong country, you died for the wrong cause, and your ma often said that it was Ireland's great loss. All those fine young men in March to foreign shores to fight the wars when the greatest war of all was at home. Your mommy and me When you marched to the You were proud as could be And it killed your poor man And it slowly killed me When you were blown to Kingdom Kong On the shores of Gallipoli You were all that we had Your mommy and me When you marched to the proud as could be and it killed your poor man it slowly killed me when you were blown to kingdom come on the shores of Gallipoli with Gallipoli. I would like to welcome to the studio the author of Whalers and Warriors, Neil Plim, and Lydia, who is also part of the project and wrote a song inspired by the book and is also Neil's wife. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. Thank you, Riddy. Thank you, Riddy. Neil, what inspired this, this project? What inspired me to write these untold stories was a lack of recognition for the whaler horses and their massive contribution to the success of the war effort, including the Boer War and World War One. That's inspired me to bring this, highlight this story forward so it's, we're aware of what did happen and the losses incurred by those wars. And the whaler horses are, based, uh, are horses that were bred in New South Wales? The whaler horses' origins are Australian, purely Australian, uh, basing, themselves, basing themselves from the first fleet. Uh, a few horses which exacerbated over a period of time through the importation through fleets to Australia. Many breeds are involved in the whaler horse uh, throughout the universe such as Suffolk Punch, Cleveland Bay, Thoroughbred, Arab, Timor Pony, um, Clydesdale, Percheron. There's enormous amount of depth of genetics in the early whaler horses. Because they were bred as well, weren't they, too, for the harsh conditions of um, Australia? 
They were bred for needs of the farming community for a start. And because of their resilience and toughness, the British army and cavalry sought them to be a part of their whole universal um, squads in India, especially the, the campaigns in India for a start. And so they become very popular with the British and Australia, of course, uh, that iconic name of whaler was iconed by the British, not the Australians. So every horse bred in Australia basically was called a whaler. Mm. And that became the name of the Australian whaler. And there was what 136,000 whalers were sent? 121,000 were sent to the First World War. Yeah. One came home. A horse called Sandy. In the Boer War, there was 35,000 whaler horses. Out of a whole 500,000 that went to the Boer War from America and other places around the universe to fight that war. 300,000 horses died in that conflict in Africa. No numbers are known on the 35,000 Australian horses, but they never came back. So what, what motivated you to, to sort of to, to do this, these stories? Well, being a horseman uh, and a, a love of horses, um, I was appalled. Appalled by the situation that prevailed where they were not looked upon as members of the forces. They were looked upon really as livestock, expendable livestock. And of course, they were expendable at that point in time. So that brought an emotion to me to write about these stories because there's very little told about them in this context of the horses. Many have been told in regard to uh, the human involvement and the losses of human, which is well told and well established, but the horses have not been well established in a community dialogue. Okay, we're going to go to part of the story, but just to give a brief outline of how the story begins, it begins with the McFarlane family that migrated from Aberdeen, Scotland to Australia in 1901. And it was basically a farming family with Sandy and his wife Shannon and their three children, Mary, Tom and Bronte, and they settled in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. And, uh, and Sandy, the father, purchases horses from a prominent breeder of um, horses. And then the story sort of focuses on young Tom and his relationship with the horses, especially Ben, who was born in 1906. And then Ben, I mean, then Tom, inspired by um, stories of the mounted soldiers of Australia, the New South Wales Militia 6 Australian Light Horse. Um, and then he and Ben team up with Mike Dunbar and his horse, Tracker. And then when the British and Germany went to war in August 1914, the then Australian Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher, pledged full support for an enthusiasm for Britain. Yes. Well, this story of Tom, a young aspiring horseman coming from Scotland, which many people did migrate to Australia in that period of time, uh, agriculturalist, ruralists to enhance the productivity of Australia. They were very welcomed and very much sought after. They sought a new life of prosperity, adventure, and a whole new being. And when Tom came as a young boy of nine, he came to this country 
And of course, horses wa was a part of his early history and have become entrenched in his further history. And the breeding of horses and his love for the horses one was enhanced through the process. Lydia, would you like to read some of the book? This is The Battle of Romany. The regiment left Gallipoli on December 21st, 1915 and returned to Egypt. All were extremely glad to be reunited with their horses to reform as the 1st Light Horse Regiment, joining up with the Anzac Mounted Division under the command of Major General Harry Cheval. The object was now to protect the Nile Valley from the bands of pro-Turkish Sanasi Arabs, also to join forces in defending the much-regarded British interests of the Suez Canal. On August 14, 1916, after midnight, the Turkish soldiers streamed across the Sinai Desert towards the Romani tableland, but ahead, General Cheval strategically placed outposts of the Anzacs Mounted Division in order to curb the Turkish juggernaut and its movement towards the Suez Canal. Towards dawn, the Turks spotted the Australians' charge, forward slicing through the Turkish defence lines, annihilating posts with speed and efficiency to dislocate their ability to reinforce. This was the commencement of the bloody Battle of Romani in defence of the major man-made waterway, the Suez Canal. The commander of the Middle East operations, British General Sir Archibald Murray, became very concerned as the Turks were advancing strongly into Egypt following the same route Napoleon traversed in 1801 without success. Murray ordered Cheval and his Anzac Mounted Division to halt this Turkish thrust. Cheval, who was considered to be an excellent war strategist, put his mind to the task and spent many days surveying the landscape and terrain, including large areas of desert. Finally, he came up with a plan and a decisive battleground, the Romani Tablelands. During these waiting times, Cheval dispensed his Anzacs all around Romani to assimilate to the relentless heat and limited war rations for both soldier and their horses. Tom and Mike shared the ordeal, especially their water, sacrificing it themselves in order to give more of this precious resource to Ben and Tracker. They were sharply aware of the battle ahead and the responsibility in hand. There was nervousness in the air. After midnight, August the 3rd, the Turk advance was imminent, a little bit under-detected at the rapid movement of thousands of Turks in a fanatical front. The furious assault fell on the first, on the first brigade, one, two and three regiments who were waiting on the Romany lower slopes. Tom and Mike had a pact, fight together, live or die together. The encounter was fierce and murderous, with the Turks charging with outstretched bayonets, ran into the point-blank fire of the light horsemen. As the Turk front line fell, new lines emerged with the constant chatter and rattle of machine gun fire. It was relentless for three hours, with the light horsemen sending back one attack after another. Still, under enormous pressure from the Turk mass movement, Cheval ordered to withdraw slowly as part of his overall strategy. The Turks were ever inspired by this withdrawal and considered they were now on the run. So with more spirited advances, they delivered a most venomous assault on the Anzacs. Cheval, with his ever-present guile, eliminating all possibilities of a line break by the Turks and approaching the Anzacs from the rear, a small contingent was sent, led by Sergeant Tom McFarlane, 
to occupy an escarpment high above the lower plains in order to defend the landscape gap from a military breakthrough. This would leave the Anzacs extremely vulnerable. Tom and his contingent of light horse occupied the escarpment and were at the ready. A large body of Turks, realising the strategic importance, mounted an attack with large numbers. The battle raged, but the Anzacs held their ground with minimal numbers compared to the Turks. They had the advantage of the escarpment height to defend. Many Turks perished at the bottom of the sheer slopes of this battleground, so they abandoned the mission. The Anzacs suffered very few casualties. Darkness was approaching and the sound of silence descended over the whole area. Men of both sides were exhausted, dehydrated, battle-scarred and bullet-wounded. As daylight came filtering through the haze of battle, Cheval watched and witnessed the battered 1st Brigade, but was well aware that the initiative must be kept up, so he rallied his gaunt and haggard Anzacs to their feet and instructed them that a final onslaught towards the Turk, he added with a word of encouragement and assurance that the artillery would be applying a devastating bombardment in support. The Anzacs launched a frenzied attack on the Turks, still holding the important strategic spot of the Wellington Bridge, with a full frontal attack drove the Turks back. Then above the roar of the battle came a blood-chilling sound of 800 Turkish soldiers in a mass fiercely charging directly at Mount Meredith, a key position held by the New Zealanders. In turn, they opened up a massive fire of exchange of machine guns in rapid fire, hitting the front ranks of the Turks with many hundreds to their bloody death. This slaughter continued when Cheval decided to spring his trap. He then directed the remnants of the 1st Brigade to cease the withdrawal and join up with the New Zealanders, and to stop the withdrawal and to hold the line. Both Tom and Mike took some leadership positions as the ranks had been severely depleted in the withdrawal attacks. Cheval then brought 2nd and 3rd Brigades in from the flanks to implement his plan to compress the enemy into a defined area, covered by British artillery. Finally, the light horsemen dismounted and moved en masse towards the Turks, and then the artillery opened up and gouged great gaps into the tight line of the Turk offensive, which marginalised the fight towards the Anzacs. That day the blood turned the sand red with the blood of many, the onslaught was relentless and the Turkish hope of conquest had seriously been brought to its knees. Under the ever-blistering sun, the Romani tableland quivered and shook with the constant bombardment and they were all locked into this violent battle to the bitter end. During the ordered withdrawal, many horses became bogged in the very dry, loose desert sand, including Ben. Tom quickly dismounted as time was the essence with the fast-approaching Turkish front. Mike and Tracker, realising their dilemma, quickly raced to help, threw Tom a rope line to fix onto both saddles. Tracker applied pull power, with Mike guiding him with firm but even pressure. Tom was under Ben's hindquarter, pushing him upward and forward. It seemed like an eternity, but after many minutes of extreme effort, Ben used his incredible strength, gained a footing and lunged forward, freeing himself. Tom quickly mounted and hastened their retreat to the main contingent. Many other horse and rider experienced a similar problem with a gruesome ending, with the Turks pouring over them, slaughtering all before them. Major General Henry Cheval, on the cusp of success, poured even more pressure onto the Turks, and it became too much to encounter with the artillery heavily bombarding their lines. 
the Battle of Romani was over, with losses to the Turk of over 5,000. The Anzacs suffered 222 killed, 679 wounded. Tom and Mike reflected over this gruesome three-day period, glad to be alive, but felt much grievance for their mates who lost their lives and the horses that sacrificed their lives in this most ferocious battle.
listening to The Bohemian Beat, produced at Bay FM and Byron Bay and heard nationally across the community radio network. Today on the show, we are talking with Neil and Lydia. With a passion for social justice and the noble horse, Neil presents in his book, Whalers and Warriors, stories not usually included in the Anzac legends of the abandonment of Indigenous First Australians and the Aussie-bred war horse, the Whalers. It is difficult to imagine such harsh outcomes after all this suffering. Neil, have you come to some understanding of the bigger picture? No pressure. <laughs> the bigger picture is what do we learn from uh, these experiences and these readings and, and research so that we carry a knowledge forward into the present day to learn from this mistakes maybe and learn from the events of war so we learn to how to mitigate war in the future that would be one of the lessons of the bigger picture to me it's not very prevalent unfortunately <laughs> so continuing with um ben's story so we're going to move to chapter six the hero hero's last reward and sandy Tom was repatriated to England for continued medical treatment to his bullet-torn body for the next three months. While in his hospital bed, he was informed that all the whaler horses will not be given passage back to Australia because of quarantine regulations and the logistics were totally impractical. Tom and many light horsemen were devastated by this decision and offered to buy their war mates back and support their passage back home. But the army refused point blank at any request. An order was sent out to all regiments that all horses were to be classified A, B, C and D according to their condition and age and all C and D horses had to be shot. They were first to have their shoes removed, manes and tails to be cut off as steel and horse hair was saleable and after their demise the hides were to be produced into saleable leather. Many light horsemen were appalled and outraged. They asked and gained permission to take one last ride into the desert where they shot their war mate to die with some dignity. The remainder of the whalers were tied up to the picket lines and given their last nosebag of feed and shot where they stood. Many of these brave whalers were in the great charge at Beersheba along with many other battles. Much bitterness prevailed as to the treatment given out to these gallant war horses which gave their loyalty, heart and soul for the pursuit of man and were betrayed in a horrible way. Tom was informed of this outcome during his convalescence at his English hospital and was deeply saddened and angry that these partners in combat could be treated in this callous way. But some comfort was forthcoming towards his personal grief that Ben, Tracker and Mike did not have to confront this process and they had died with some dignity. Tom returned to Australia some months later with his body still repairing and his mind trying to recalibrate towards normality after experiencing all the hostilities of war. He was welcomed home with love and acceptance from his Hunter Valley community and especially his family, Sandy, Shannon, Mary and Bronte. Of course he was delighted to touch and pat Boss and Bess, bringing back the memory of their young born cult named Ben. 
Tom continued his dream of breeding fine horses with Sandy and Shannon for many years and experienced great success with the thoroughbreds in the racing industry, combined with the continuation of the whalers, known as the Australian Stock Horse, holding a special place in Tom's heart. And Lydia, you wrote a beautiful um, piece inspired by the story of Ben. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, really. The inspiration for the song first really started for me when we started in the mid-1980s working with some whaler horses that had been brought over from the Hart Ranges in the Territory over to the Gold Coast uh, in an effort to save them from being put down through the brucellosis uh, program by the government. So in an effort to try to save the whaler breed, they were shipped out and, and brought across to various other places in Australia where horse owners took them on as wild horses to tame them and to use them as saddle horses. And that now forms the, the basis of the whaler horses in their breed today. So the song sort of started its inspiration from there and was put into a draft format until the book was written and then the whale horse in the actual song reflected then Ben from the book. So the recording's just been done now that the book's been published uh, in tribute to Ben and from the, from the book. And the song is called It's My Whaler, Ben. That's right. Shame Cause he could run faster 
as I stand here alone in the chill of the dawn, I can still hear the sound of the mute bugle call and the memory. listening to the Bohemian Beat and today we are featuring the book Whalers and Warriors by Neil Plym and we just heard a track by Lydia Plym called My Whaler Ben but we didn't hear about the fate of the the one horse that returned called Sandy. Yes Sandy was actually had been assigned to the commander of the Australian First Division General William Throsby Bridges. Sandy was one of 6,100 whalers that were actually at the Gallipoli Peninsula. When General Bridges was shot, they found out that it was his dying wish that Sandy be returned. And that's the only reason why Sandy came home. And he was the only one to actually come home. And he did live on for several other years after going back to England for quarantine, then back to Australia. Um, And he spent his remaining years um, in Melbourne and died some years later. And he was the only one out of the 300,000 all up over the, the period of the two wars that came home alive. This, this is a very important book and it, it really shows um, the realities of war. And another, um, the warriors part of the book, Neil, you explore um, what happened to Indigenous volunteers during the Boer War. The Indigenous volunteers uh, tried to enlist, but they were ineligible because of their lack of citizenship to Britain or Australia. They volunteered then by the request of Lord Kitchener, who was the commander in the Boer War for Britain, to be bushmen and trackers to help the British armies and cavalry to fight the Boers in a guerrilla-type warfare. That was their role. They went... And at the end of the war, they never came home. They were never repatriated back and they lived the rest of their lives. And unknown by history at this stage, how many, how many were still there, but not one ever came back. And why weren't they allowed to come back to their their home country? Because they didn't have citizenship and uh, they were the wrong colour. And also... That was it. They were alienated. In the First World War, they were enlisted and they were soldiers. And they were enlisted and they got the same rights as their white counterparts. But when they returned home, after repatriation of the First World War, they then were denied all rights and they went back to their early status of non-citizenship. So they lost all, they had no entitlements as their white counterparts did. So the alienation and the abandonment for these people was horrendous. So these are these are the tough topics that um, are still haunting us today, and I think they will continue to haunt us until we actually admit them. I think on a much much grander um, scale. 
We're just going to go to a track by Archie Roach called Far Away Home. Far away in another life I walked my land proud and free Far away from my other life Searching I roam Far away home Far away in those distant lands Life's hard but living is good There the hunt leaves no blood on my hands There I would roam My far away home Where the sun warms the deepest fold And the rain sleeps on rocks so old And the night falls and stories told I'd like to be Wandering free But they don't know the pain in me Cause they can't know what I can see I'm surrounded by misery I'd like to be Always free Far away home Far away in another name I walked my soul proud and free Now I'm torn from that distant land I'm going home. You are listening to The Bohemian Beat. And today on the show, we have been featuring the book by Neil Plym called Whalers and Warriors. 
Neil and Lydia, thank you so much for joining us today on The Bohemian Beat. It's been an absolute pleasure to go through this journey. I mean, it has been a bit devastating, but I mean, but it's stories that, that definitely need to be told. And if you want more information about the book and about Neil, because you do incredible artwork as well, go to tweedart.com.au for more information. Thank you, Rudy. Thank you, Rudy, very much. Okay, so we are coming up to the end of the hour now. So I will be back next week, same beat time, same Bohemian frequency. And for more information about The Bohemian Beat, check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com. We are going to end with a track by Nigel Verne, a folk singer-songwriter from Victoria, from his soon-to-be-released new album, Drawing Circles. So this is a sneak preview. Also, Nigel will be our special guest next week. This track is called Son of a Blacksmith, and it touches on Nigel's grandfather's wartime experiences. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Bohemian Beat.
cloning the machine till death do us done. And a son of a blacksmith got a message to reply. We regret to inform you your father has died. Why was a young old man sent back to my fields? Sister and mother too And a new young wife And a baby Jew I had my land sheds and my home That I'd built from the ground No time to grieve and there's work to be done Why was a young girl Divided into at a wartime price, with too little pasture left to use. I had to sell my land, was deceived by the banks. An honest man, where honesty gets no thanks. Living in a fibro.
despite the injustice he'd been done. Why am a young man at age 31 wondering what I would have done?